I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. In the early morning hours of March 1st, 2008, two young men burst into the cafe home in the middle of the night and embarked on a killing spree that would leave two young children and their mother dead. Their father, Terry, suffered multiple gunshot wounds, but somehow managed to drag himself to a neighbor for help. It took less than 24 hours for the police to discover that Terry's 16-year-old daughter played an integral role in this heinous crime. Why would a teenage girl want her whole family dead? And exactly what role did Erin play in these brutal murders? This is Episode 10, The Erin Caffey Story. Hi, Megan. Hi, Amy. Happy to be back. Always. Welcome to Women in Crime, everyone. Yes. Um, Do you know anything about the Erin Caffey story? I can tell you that I know she is a tiny blonde. I just remember seeing her on Pierce Mm -hmm. Morgan. I didn't really watch so much, though. So, you know, it's always great when you pick cases I don't know well. I just remember her size. Maybe it's because Yeah, I think she's like 4'11". She's teeny. Yeah. Okay. So before we get into the details of this case, of course, we want to talk a little bit about the Caffey family. So Erin was the oldest of three children. She was born on July 27th, 1991. People say she was naive and loved attention. She was young at the time of the crimes we'll be discussing. She was just 16. She often sang in church gospel. You'll actually hear, uh, you mentioned you saw the Piers Morgans, and she does sing Amazing Grace. She has a nice voice. I remember that part. Yeah. So she had two brothers. She had Matthew, who was 13, and Tyler, who was eight. Her mother was 37-year-old Penny Caffey. 
Penny was well-liked. She was a talented seamstress. She also volunteered her time working with the elderly and disabled. And she, along with Aaron, was a gospel singer at their church. Now, the father, Terry, who I briefly mentioned in the intro, he was 41 years old. He worked in the home healthcare industry. He often preached in his local church, and he was working towards being an ordained minister. Oh, as, they, yeah, These are like good people. Well, as you might have guessed, they were a very religious family. Church was a huge part of their life. They were very involved in their church and very well liked in their very small community of Celeste, Texas. The family, well, the parents were described at times as overprotective, but that, I guess, goes along sometimes with being overly religious. I think so, too. Yeah, Yeah. maybe a little stricter. Yeah, but by all accounts, the family was extremely close, and Erin got along really well with her family and had only recently started having disagreements with them. And we'll understand why that was the case in just a few moments. So all three children were homeschooled for many years, and they had a Bible-based curriculum. The mother homeschooled them. Erin had actually recently begun attending a public high school, and this is where she would meet a new group of friends. In July 2007, Erin got her license, and she also got a job at Sonic. Do you know Sonic? Of course, yeah. yeah. It's like the burger drive through place, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So some say that it was almost like a, a caged animal being let free. This was like the first time she was like in the world, because she was homeschooled, she was slightly sheltered, according to reports. So she was really out and doing her own thing. And this is where she would meet Charlie Wilkinson. Charlie Wilkinson will become a crucial part of this story. Erin started dating Charlie soon after she began working at Sonic. Uh, He had worked there as well. Charlie was reportedly from a broken home. Some people say he was hot-headed, but he was a good kid overall. No issues with the law, nothing, you know, no reports of anything going on with him. His MySpace page showed he was drinking, you know, but normal Normal teenage stuff. Yeah. So he was almost 20 years old. She was just 16. And they were in love, very serious, very quickly and, you know, inseparable, like a young, a situation where, you know, your first love and they were really just couldn't get enough of each other. I remember. (laughs) (laughs) Not surprisingly, though, her parents were not fond of this relationship. Was it because of the age gap? So partially because of the age gap. And also, they thought that he was a little bit possessive. He showed signs of being a little too possessive, a little too obsessive. You know, as I said, his MySpace page revealed that he drank a little, so he was partying a little. You know, the parents didn't love it, but Aaron didn't care at all. And the relationship went on. So the parents actually were seemingly supportive. Charlie would often join the family for dinner at their home. He would attend church with them. So things seemed to kind of be going okay. But then the parents really put their foot down and they no longer wanted Aaron to see him. And was there an incident? Yeah. So some reports say it's because he gave her a promise ring, which was actually his grandmother's engagement ring. So that gave the impression that things are moving way too fast. But it could also have been a combination of all these things. And of course, Aaron, who always got along well with her family, is fighting with them, you know, around this time. So Aaron started spending more time away from home. Of course, her parents were not happy about this. She started hanging around with. Of course, Charlie, her boyfriend, and then Charles Allen Wade, who was 20 years old, who was a good friend of Charlie. So there's a Charles and a Charlie. Sorry. At least it's a little different. So Charles Allen Wade, as I mentioned, was 20 years old. He had uh, graduated high school. He was married and getting a divorce and had a five-month-old. So that's a little bit about what he's up to. He is dating Bobby Gale Johnson, who was 18 at the time. Okay. So these are kind of the players involved here. We have Charlie, Charles, and Bobby. So as I mentioned, Erin's fighting a lot with her parents. They tell her to stop seeing Charlie. She doesn't listen. They took her phone away. They try to ground her. 
It was around this time, allegedly, that Aaron started to formulate a plan. So for about a month or so before the event that we'll be talking about here, she's talking to her friends that she needs her parents to die and they're going to help her carry out this plan. She believed that the only way she would ever be able to be with Charlie hassle-free was to get rid of her parents. Is he also talking about this to other people? Do we know? Oh, apparently it was the four of them that were a tight-knit group. And, you know, there may have been other people that provided testimony here and there that they spoke about. It was really came down through this little crew. No, no, no. Uh, Sorry. So misunderstood. Was he also talking like you're saying uh, she was telling friends? Was he also telling friends that he needed her parents to die? Not really. Okay. So it was more about what she was saying. Well, of course, she would say that's not the case. Ah. So it becomes, well, who really was the mastermind here? Okay. And that becomes the crux of this case. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the crime itself. So on March 1st, 2008, this plan would be executed. So before the massacre was to begin, Erin snuck out of her home and went for a drive with Charlie, Charles, and Bobby. So she snuck out of her home after her parents were asleep, gets in the car with them. The four of them drove to a nearby cemetery and discussed the details of the impending murder. During the discussion, apparently Aaron promises Charles $2,000, which would be money that would be stolen from the home. That's the exact amount that Charles needed for a custody battle that he was involved in. So according to all three of the others, Aaron was the mastermind, showed no hesitation, and actually was quite excited at the prospect of this happening. And you would really think out of four of them, at least one of them would realize, like, yeah, it's probably not the best idea. But you have four people and nobody's trying to stop this from happening. Well, you know, you see this with like these group murders with kids. What was that story? Bully, you know, based on the true story where a bunch of kids got together and decided to murder their friends because he was a bully. And it just all goes back to the fact that, you know, their brains are not developed and impulse decision making and a group mentality together could be like the perfect storm. And it sure was because they returned to the home about an hour later. Around 1.30 a.m., Charlie and Charles entered the cafe home armed with 22 caliber pistols and a samurai sword. Aaron had left the front door open for them. That was part of the plan, so they didn't have to worry about getting in. Aaron and Bobby stayed in the car during the whole attack. So once they entered the home, Charlie headed to the parents' room. Terry and Penny, they were fast asleep in their bedroom. And basically, they just stormed in the room and opened fire. So not only did they open fire on the two parents sleeping, Charles would also slash Penny with the sword, almost decapitating her. So they have two guns and a samurai sword? Correct. Is there any reason for the sword? It's just like literally overkill and just like going in like in a movie because I don't get it. Yeah, I don't understand it either. It's actually not even clear whose sword it was. Okay. I wasn't able to find that anywhere. So um, the two boys were woken, not surprisingly, because there was quite a commotion with the gunshot wounds and the screaming. The little boys, 13 and 8, locked themselves in a room, but unfortunately, the offenders got to them. Charles shot Matthew, the older boy, in the face and then stabbed Uh. Tyler with the sword. There are some reports that say Charlie stabbed him as well. Before leaving the home, they grab a suitcase, as per Aaron's instructions, and they set the home on fire. So they assume that they have successfully executed the plan and killed Aaron's family. And Aaron was okay with them murdering the, as what you're saying, the the two small children. That was part of the plan is what I mean. That was. And no one can understand why. Like, why kill these two little boys? I mean, why kill anyone, right? But if your motive for killing is to be able to be with your boyfriend without your parents bothering you, why do you need to kill your brothers? 
This is a different kind of family annihilator. And, and you know, mm-hmm. usually the family annihilators are utilitarian. So it would be like, yeah, killing the parents. But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know if we'll get to that later. But... Yeah. Towards the end of the episode, we'll talk a little bit about the usual profile of okay. a family annihilator and how Aaron does or does not fit. Okay. So the two boys left the home. You know, like I said, they executed their plan. And apparently when they returned to the waiting vehicle, Aaron reportedly said, quote, I am glad that is over. And holy shit, that was awesome. Wow. And this was three people separately told the police these things. So, okay. So she was very happy that the ordeal was over. She showed no signs of remorse, no signs of grief at all. Well, this is according to the three, but I'm sure we're going to get to the fact that these three are probably going to be cut deals to provide testimony against her, possibly. Well, we'll see. All right. Okay. So Charles and Charlie left the home with $325 in cash. The $2,000 was not recovered. I was just going to say. And as I mentioned, they before they drive off, they set the home on fire. Charlie and Erin got dropped off at Charlie's trailer by Charles, and they had sex that night. Oh, celebrate, you know, celebratory sex, you know, there it is. So, you know, they're happy. We could finally be together. The family's gone and they have sex. So unbeknownst to them, there was a survivor. However, around 4.30 a.m., a 911 call came in reporting the shooting slash fire. Terry Caffey, the father, miraculously survived the ordeal and crawled to a neighbor's home for help. Wow. He had been shot five times. Wow. Including once in the head. And also in the face, the shoulder, and the back. In addition, he almost drowned in a creek because they lived in a very rural area and on his way to the neighbor's home. Well, his neighbor's home was over 500 yards away. Oh, my God. So with those five gunshot wounds and the trauma of what just happened, he made it there. He immediately had told the police that his family was dead and that Charlie Wilkinson was responsible. So in interviews with the father, I watched quite a few things. He's very public. We'll talk about that at the end. He said that he knew his family was dead and he knew he was the only chance that they would catch the person that did it. And he said that was his will to live. I was going to say that. I bet that was that was the driving force. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty remarkable. It really is. So since they lived in such a small town, the police knew exactly who Charlie was and it did not take them long to find him. They quickly got a search warrant for his trailer. They found a purse in the trailer with Aaron's driver's license. They found shell casings, a box of ammo, and a used condom. Oh, (laughs) at least they were having safe sex. Right? Good for them. (laughs) So responsible, these two. Uh, Most interestingly, they found Erin. So she was hiding in a pile on the floor. So apparently the state of this trailer, he was like a hoarder and like a messy guy. And there was just like shit everywhere. One of the investigators says he thought it was a doll. He saw like blonde hair sticking out. And he went to like pick it up. And it was, in fact, Erin herself. She immediately act confused. She did say her name was Erin, but she claimed she did not know where she was or what was going on. Oh, yeah. Well, what else are you going to go to? So she immediately acts stupid and confused. And the police think, oh, maybe Erin's a victim here as well. Maybe she was kidnapped. She told police they asked her what happened. She said the last thing she remembered is waking up in a smoke filled house, seeing two men with swords. She also claimed she had been drugged. Spoiler alert, none of that is true. <laughs> Where is Charlie at this time? Is he also in the trailer? They apprehend him as well? Oh, no, he's he's very quickly taken into custody. Oh, okay, yeah. I see. And then, you know, so while this is all happening, they're taking him into custody, and okay. then they find her. This is all kind of happening Got around it. the same time. So the first red flag for the police was she didn't smell like smoke at all. One of the investigators immediately, you know, kind of took a whiff of her and said, hmm, 
She was in a smoke-filled home, but she does not at all smell like smoke, okay? So they also tested her lungs for smoke, and of course they did a toxicology screen. Uh, No drugs were found in her system. Wow. No smoke in her lungs. Her story was unraveling pretty fast. They also pulled cell phone records at this point and were able to see that, you know, she was in constant contact during the whole time of what was going on. This is not going to be tough to unravel this one, unpack this one. Oh, yeah. So while she's being questioned, she finds out that her father has survived the attack. Okay, because she thought everyone died. Oh, of course. Yeah. So speaking of actually of the investigation, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, speaking of the interrogation, the investigators would later say that Erin was one of the best liars they had ever come across in their whole career. And I'm sure they come across many. And she was what, like 17? 16. She was 16. So Charlie is being interrogated at this time. And the police tell him, you know, Terry, I did you. Terry's alive. And he told us you did this. So he actually starts to talk. Because, I was going to say, hold on, she lies, but he crumbles, I bet. Well, because he also knows, oh, if Terry's alive, like yeah. the jig is up. Yeah. Although it's funny because we know that investigators could have been just bluffing. Totally. But he believed them. They were actually telling the truth in this case. And so he just starts talking. He says that Aaron was the mastermind. He says he suggested that they just run away together. She insisted that the only way they could be together is if the family was killed and he loved her. And that's kind of why he went along with this plan. Shortly after, Charles Wade and Bobby Johnson were also brought in for questioning. This was very easy for the police because all of these participants were very quick to give detailed accounts of what went down that night. And all of their accounts pretty much matched up. And obviously they were kept separate. Oh. Um, apparently, according to Charles, Bobby had no idea what was going on. It's probably just trying to protect his girlfriend I'd because obviously so. she was in the car that night. She was at the cemetery when they were talking about what was going to happen. So you're going to tell me what she was like, just not listening so that's kind of, I think that's bullshit. But, you know, what a sweet guy. At least he was trying to. I was going to say chivalry is not dead, right? <laughs> oh, my God. But, yeah, we clearly oh, know. God. I mean, she knew, obviously. And, you know, Charles Wade was, like, one of the first to really throw Erin under the bus, mentioning very quickly that she, quote, unquote, said, holy shit, that was awesome, and was really ecstatic about what had just happened. And did the others confirm that she said that? They did. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, predictably, Erin was arrested for her role in the murders. Um, she was actually on her way to visit her father at the hospital um, when she got apprehended. She gave a written statement denying any involvement at all. She maintained her innocence throughout the proceedings. Um, she claimed she was not the mastermind. At some point, she admits, of course, that she could have done more to stop it. At, you know, but she at this point, she's claiming full innocence. And then it turns to, OK, fine, but I wasn't the mastermind. So it shifts a little. She was taken to a juvenile center and held on murder charges. Really heartbreaking. Terry was informed of her involvement from his hospital bed. And this is actually on the Piers Morgan special. I don't know if you saw the whole thing, but this poor guy just lost his two young sons, his wife, and he is suffering these severe injuries and he has no family with him. And the police come in to kind of break the news to him like your daughter. He says, like, is she okay? Because he knows the other ones are dead. And that's when he is informed that 
Not only is she okay, yes, but she had quite involvement in this case. Oh, I can't imagine the shock that came with that. So it's really like, how do you get over that? How do you get over the fact that your daughter is responsible for killing your wife and your two little boys? Like, how do you forgive your daughter? Would you forgive your daughter? I mean, I know I wouldn't, but I don't have kids. So. Okay, well... I, don't, I mean, I do have kids and I, you know, I hope I never have to be in that position right. because, you know, Terry, he forgave her and he was actually by her side throughout all of the court proceedings, comforting her, holding her hand. And to this day, he visits her in prison. We'll talk about what's going on now when we get to, you know. Did he believe her? So I'm wondering if forgiveness was easy. Did he believe that she was kind of a victim as well and that maybe she was brainwashed and maybe she went along with it but wasn't the mastermind? You're so smart, Megan. I feel like I say that often, but Thanks. so he believed that while she may have been a contributor, she was in no way the mastermind that she was painted as and thought that she was manipulated by Charlie. I, the reason I said that, too, is if you remember when we covered Carla Homolka, mm -hmm. her family also forgave her for the role in her sister's death because they believed that she was under the control of Paul, who was the master manipulator. So mm -hmm. that's where I was going. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't like Charlie. Charlie was four years her senior. Erin was 16. So, you know, and she was a young 16. She, she was very immature. She very still naive. looks young. So. Yeah. You know, also remember, they're very religious and people who are religious okay. are often very forgiving. True. Right. So I think his faith probably came into play there. So he was extremely angry, as you would imagine. He actually advocated for the death penalty for both Charles and Charlie. He was so enraged that he talked about even bringing a gun with him to the courthouse and wanting to shoot the boys in the head. Wait, wait, hold on. Yeah. What state was this again? In Texas. I thought it was Texas. Yes, I was you can just bring your gun to court in Texas, can't you? But the death penalty is a real option, too. Oh, for sure, for sure. And we'll talk about what ends up happening with that. So he would actually eventually ask the court to take the death penalty off of the table because he started focusing on forgiveness. So remember, he was so angry, obviously, at first, as anyone would be, that he really, he said not only did he think about killing these boys, he had planned how he would kill them. Like, he was serious about it. And then... You know, as he starts healing, he starts forgiving and he decides he doesn't want anyone. He doesn't want the death penalty on the table at all. And because, you know, he was the victim, they take that into consideration. And because I think of his advocating for that, they did take the death penalty off of the table. They do take that into consideration. The, but uh, also part of the plea bargain, they, you know, I think that was something they could use also. So I but, don't know how much of it was because he didn't want it versus... The prosecutor saying, you know. But oftentimes when the prosecutor is doing the plea, they will consult the victim yes. and, and ask them, how would you feel about this? And I mean, I've in a lot of cases, the prosecutor will make a decision mm -hmm. uh, largely based on how the victim feels. So. Yep. And I, I think that's a good practice. I do too. Yeah. I mean, not always. Yeah, <laughs> but of course. But in this case, it's, you know, I think it worked out okay. It's part so, of justice, right? We always talk yeah. about what justice is. And part of justice is allowing someone to feel like they are part of this process. Yep. And it allows them to heal. Well, it's also interesting, though, because in our system, the victims also consider society, right? Oh, correct. Yeah. So it's like you have the direct victim, but then the indirect victim. And how do you kind of balance the needs of both, I right. guess? So something else I want to mention about the evidence against Erin, after she was arrested, an ex-boyfriend of hers came forward and reported that Erin had told him that she wanted her parents killed and she was trying to find someone who she could hire to get the job done. She allegedly told this boy that she needed them to die because every time she got a boyfriend, her parents would ruin things for her. So this was just a little more evidence to suggest that maybe she was in fact the mastermind here. Okay. So what happened? So all four are charged with three counts of capital murder. 
both men, well, I guess you could say both boys, because they are quite young, yeah. right? They pled guilty to avoid the death penalty, as we talked about, and they got life without parole. Okay. I think that is the right outcome for them because they actually, they're the ones who pulled the trigger or used the sword. Right? Sounds like an appropriate sentence. Not so sure about Bobby, though. So Bobby pled guilty to being an accomplice. Accomplice to murder. Okay. Mm-hmm. And she got 40 years with parole possible in 20. But keep in mind, she had no participation at all other than not stopping it. And she was in the car. I'm not saying that we should absolve her of any guilt, but I think that's a little harsh. She was young also. Also, when we talk about like felony murder and what people get who don't actually commit the crime, I really, without knowing the case full well, I would agree and say that that's a little too harsh if she was. She was only 18. I mean, she wasn't a juvenile, but she, you know. She's an 18. If she's 18 and she knows, but is just sitting in the car, I mean, she's not innocent, sure. Yep. And she could have stopped it and she could have done a lot, but 40 years is harsh. I agree. So she'll be eligible for parole in 20 years. So she'll be about 40. So she still has a little bit of a life ahead of her, I guess. But as we know, she'll have a felony record and 20 years of being prisonized. So who knows what, you know, her life is effectively kind of done. Probably not children, you know. all. Yeah, uh... exactly. So Erin pled guilty as well. Oh, She, She got two life sentences plus an additional 25 years. So was the only point of her pleading guilty to avoid the death penalty? Um, I believe so. I believe so. Because I can't see a reason other that she got two life sentences plus 25. So I'm imagining the only incentive at that point was just to avoid death. Well, you know, she must serve at least 42 years to be eligible for parole. So she can actually be granted parole when she's just shy of 60 years old. Okay, so, I see. I see. There's all right. She's mm-hmm. she's has the option of yeah, parole. And, you know, nowadays with a life expectancy of 90, 100 years old, that's a decent, you know, again, she's not going to have a great life, you know, after being incarcerated for that long. But, you know, I'm not sure what I think about this sentence. So she was apparently the mastermind. She did nothing at, you know, not nothing physically to harm anyone. Do you think this is an appropriate sentence? She was 16 years old. And apparently she just told people to kill her family. Does she have, uh, before I render a decision, because mm-hmm. I'm not there yet, does she have any mental disorders, any mental disease, any personality disorders, any history of abuse, any mitigating factors, I no. would say? Um, there was, apparently she claimed that her mother would hit her sometimes. That was never corroborated. And that wasn't really brought in. That was almost just like information that was floating around. That didn't really come up during sentencing. It's not like that was considered a mitigating factor. That was just something that was brought up along the ways of when people are trying to understand why would she want these people dead? They were such good parents. And by all accounts, such supportive, really great. So what, you know, so some people would say, well, you know, the mom was abusive. Maybe that's why. But that's, I don't think. It's unsubstantiated. So really, she just wanted her freedom. She did not want to be controlled at all. I wonder if, I mean, when we're, we, you know, we look at causes, I just wonder if all of those years of just being home just bred such an anger and resentment that she wasn't able to be, you know, almost like a normal kid mm-hmm. and do these normal things. And when she did escape, like you said, maybe it was just, you know, when you get too much to yeah. like when you go from zero to 100, yeah. all of a sudden she was like, I have got to get out of here. I've got to get rid of this. You know, mm-hmm. they've, they've been the ones who've been keeping me in captivity. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's a good enough explanation. Yeah, I'm just trying to uh, trying to understand. It. But again, why kill the two boys? She's never so that publicly I don't know. talked about that. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to hold off my decision okay, yeah, again until, until the we're end done. Okay. because you still have a little bit more. I also have a question. Where did they get the guns? They just had guns. Okay. It was Texas. I was going to say, <laughs> like, okay. what do you think? No. Okay, that was um, a stupid question. And if they 
weren't theirs, they were their families. Okay. Like it wasn't, that was that was kind of a non-issue because it was like, we all have guns. And I guess I was looking for like, she didn't arrange for them to get weapons. No, she didn't. Buy, no, exactly. She okay. wasn't the one who got the weapons or, you know, she left the door unlocked. She okay. did things like that. Okay. So Terry has very publicly dealt with this tragedy. He talks about how he was suicidal. He wrote a book called Terror by Night, an amazing book about really about forgiveness, about this whole case. But it focuses a lot on how he was able to forgive. He travels a bit to speak about the situation. He's now a minister. As I mentioned, I just want to reiterate that he believes Erin was not the mastermind. He forgives her. He believes she was a vulnerable 16-year-old girl who was manipulated by her boyfriend. The, the happy side of this is he did get remarried and he became a stepfather to two children. He does visit Erin. I read somewhere that he visits her twice a month. Like They're still very close. Erin um, is currently serving her sentence at a high-security prison in Gatesville, Texas. She does interviews quite often. To me, she doesn't really show much remorse. She does say that she takes responsibility for not stopping the crime from happening. she That's what she told Pierce Morgan. Um, she told Dr. Phil that she didn't mean it. She admits that she often said, I want to kill my parents. But she claims it was just typical, like, oh, my parents are so annoying. I want to kill them. She claims that she would say these things just kidding around. And Charlie and Charles took her seriously. Um, she says that her role or her mistake was that she added fuel to the fire and didn't stop things. That's pretty much so. That's not really her taking responsibility, I don't believe. Did she admit to leaving the door open so they could get in? I wonder, like, did she admit to certain, you know, those those factors of the crime that uh, it really facilitated it? Um, I'm not sure exactly because I don't know that that was ever a big part of because they were really focusing on phone records because the phone records show that she was like talking to, you know, talking to these people and then they got her for an hour, no phone records and then the crime happened and then they were together, you know, so they were able, they were able to um, extrapolate a lot from looking at cell phone records. Um, at times, you know, she claims she still loves Charlie. She's saying they're going to be together forever. But in the Pierce Morgan interview, she says she no longer loves Charlie. She just sounds very childish when you hear her speak. She's almost 30 years old, but she still strikes me as she's just so, I guess, she was stunted, right? She was arrested at 16, right? So she's like growing up in a prison. She just seems very immature. And she does cry though, like real tears. Um, but she cries, it seems more so when talking about like, you know, how do you think your father was able to forgive you? You know, a lot around that. It doesn't seem like she has much remorse. She claims that once she gets out, the first thing she's going to do is go visit the cemetery where her mother and brothers are. But I don't know. I kind of call bullshit on her when she's talking. Oh, um, okay. Well, you've seen her in action a couple during a couple of yeah. interviews, right? Yeah, yeah. I think she has like a low emotional intelligence. You know, they talk oh, about for sure. She must. I mean, she's... and what about? I mean, uh, just to ask, what about uh, IQ wise? Does she she has presents with no issues of like a low IQ or anything of that nature? Nothing, nothing that stands out. I don't know if they had tested her and what the results were. Okay, so okay. I'm not sure, but she definitely seems very immature. Okay, fine, fair enough. I did see, like I said, I saw a little bit of the Pierce Morgan episode and mm -hmm. she struck, she looks, I mean, she looks childlike. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I wonder if that would have also played into the jury's decision if she had gone to trial because she looks like a child. I wonder if they would have been sympathetic to her. I think so. I actually think she would have done quite well at a trial. Yeah, I, I, I think maybe just looking at her that she might have, she might have come across as sympathetic. So yeah, I did read somewhere that part of the reason she was pled, that she pled guilty is People were making her feel pressure because your father is forgiving you. You need to just come clean, you know, stop denying this. So I'm not sure, like, I would love to interview her and ask her, why did you plead guilty? Was it because of the reduced sentence? Was it because you were 
worried about trial? Like, what was it, you know? Okay. So I just want to, before we end here, I want to talk a moment about this type of crime and whether Aaron fits the profile of what we know about the so-called family annihilator. Okay. This term family annihilator is commonly intertwined with the term familicide, which is defined as when one family member murders other members of their family, commonly taking the lives of the whole family. Okay. So who are these people? So they're actually among the least understood types of killers. They usually kill themselves or immediately confess if they don't kill themselves. So these types of cases tend to be resolved quickly and they actually don't get prolonged media attention. Always, obviously Chris Watts, you know, there are certain cases that are extremely high profile. But speaking of Chris Watts, he fits the mold of the typical family annihilator. What is that? Like, what are the characteristics? Or the white, middle-aged, white guy, usually the senior male of a household. Right. That's what I figured. You know, it's usually so there's like four common types of, or I guess you could say four common areas that may be the causes of these types of family murders. So a breakdown in a family relationship and issues surrounding access to children. So if there's a divorce and custody issues, money worries, financial hardship, you'll see, you know, that's where you see the male senior head of the household kill the family because he thinks he's doing them a favor. Sometimes there's cultural honor killings. And of course, there's mental illness, right? Okay. So looking at Erin's case, of course, she does not fit the mold of, you know, the demographics of who annihilates their family. However, she does fit in the sense that these types of crimes are usually based on emotion and an immediate need or gain. So her immediate need or her gain was that she needed to be with this boy that she was madly in love with. Right. And it often comes as a result of an ongoing conflict. So, okay. And it's often well planned. I'm not saying hers was well planned, but it was very much premeditated and planned. So, I mean, we know that family annihilations are extremely rare. Mm-hmm. So these are, I think, the the reason why it's misunderstood or not. You, you said a lot of information is available because it's still a rare incident. Very so rare. Putting mm-hmm. together a profile is somewhat difficult mm-hmm. when it's rare. Yeah, she certainly doesn't fit the mold. Not at all. But she also doesn't fit the definition technically because she didn't physically, she was not physically the one who murdered the family. So in a way, we're kind of talking about her. You know what I mean? So this is why, like when people ask, is Manson actually a serial killer? Because he never killed anyone. Yeah, I know. So it's like. I would still put her in Family Annihilator. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I would put her in that category. And I teach about this a little bit in Serial Killers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she arranged the the murder. And at her behest, Mm -hmm. it seems, Mm -hmm. her family was, you know, eradicated or most of them were. So Mm -hmm. I would still put her in that category. She's rare. So as far as the punishment fitting the crime, so it's always difficult when you have a youth too, 16 years old is young. Mm-hmm. I think that the she should serve a very lengthy sentence. What you're saying is that her first eligibility for parole would be in about 40 years, yeah, something a little, like that. Yeah, a little over 40, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say I think that's probably an appropriate sentence, to be honest. Really? Okay. Yeah. At first, I would have gone with it should be life without the possibility of parole to be honest, because mm-hmm. it is a family annihilation because, you know, she killed small children and... She didn't do it, though, physically. Yeah, but she yeah. arranged it. So I'm going to go ahead. And I, I would have gone harder on it. But then when I think about age as a mitigating factor, I think that actually her sentence is appropriate. But mm-hmm. I can tell from the way you asked me that you think she should have gotten less time. I mean, obviously what she did is heinous and I don't know how her father's so forgiving. I'm not sure I would be. Or maybe, like I said, because I feel like that's one of those things, if you're not in that situation, you really can't make a judgment, right? I think the fact that she was only 16 should have been more of a mitigating. As you said, it was mitigating in the sense that she could have got life without parole. But I think the fact that 
I know I keep focusing on this, but the fact that nothing was done at her hands, she just was planning it. And, you know, she had the men's right, but she didn't actually have the actus right in the sense that she didn't physically do anything. And for some reason, I keep going back to that. She definitely needs help. I don't, you know, I think maybe giving her maybe even 20 with the possibility of parole. But in those 20 years, make sure she's getting serious mental help and trying to rehabilitate her and really trying to have her come to terms with what she did. And I think for me, I I hear what you're saying. At 20 years, she'd still be young. And I'd wonder Mm -hmm. if she does not take responsibility and Mm -hmm. if she still doesn't at this point, would 20 years make a difference or would she come out Mm -hmm. and encounter a problem again in which the only solution for her as still a young woman, by the way, who maybe could, if she got out at that age, mm-hmm. have children herself, yeah. how would she solve her problems? Yeah. Would no. it be, again, with violence and getting others to act at her behest? Mm-hmm. I would actually worry about someone like her getting out at too young of an age, but yeah. also because we know people age at a crime. Yeah. So I think it's appropriate for mm-hmm. her to get out when she is kind of past the offending years yeah. and has had uh, enough time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also think for her to get out, she needs to... Obviously, we we cannot judge how genuine people are being, but she needs to at least fake remorse. Well, <laughs> like she, we know that a parole board, uh, if she's going up in front of a parole board, mm-hmm. no, this is going to be a tough case for her to get parole anyway. But yeah. she would have to be so remorseful. Oh yeah, genuinely remorseful. Well, she could fake it. We could fake remorse easily. Some people, you can mm-hmm. fake it, and that's true. But remember when we covered Betty Broderick, and mm-hmm. she refused to, you know, if she goes up like Betty did and says, well, I'm sorry this whole thing happened, and I'm sorry for my role, she won't yeah, get exactly. parole. Yeah, exactly. Like, she, if she continued saying, yeah, I didn't stop it, but I wasn't the mastermind. Like, she needs to just come to terms. If and, she's going to continue with that attitude, then mm-hmm. the parole board is going to say, yeah. serve your full sentence. Yeah, I think it has to do with her age, though. Hopefully, she'll, as she gets older... And hopefully receive some sort of psychological services in prison. She'll come to terms a little bit more about her involvement. I hope so. Uh, I hope so. Uh, But for, you know what, the interesting part is like we would say, yes, rehab psychological services. But for what? What's her diagnosis? I don't know. I'm sure she has one. How can you do something like that and not have something wrong with you? (laughs) Uh, uh, No, of course. But usually there is a clear we can usually point to something and say this is the area in which. Maybe she's narcissistic. Could be. Okay. Well, yeah. let's hope that Erin Caffey gets yeah. the services that she needs and that mm-hmm. uh, someday if she is paroled, she will not reoffend again. And I think we could look to uh, Terry Caffey as an example of forgiveness. And, you know, I think he's setting a pretty good example. He's an incredible person. Yeah. I would have to agree. And thank you so much for the story this week, Amy. Thank you, Megan. Thank you all for listening. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode includes Piers Morgan's Deadly Women, The Huffington Post, CNN, ABC News, and The Independent. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.